You're listening to the New Century Multiverse, the Cartographer's Handbook, Remastered. Section 6. The Story of Weirwood. Catherine Holloway. Weirwood, Charleston, West Virginia. October 9th, 1882. After the war, in the southern states we came to see our defeat at the hands of the Federal Union as one of numbers. There were simply too many opposing soldiers, and despite our military history, we could not prevail. I remember, specifically with the women, this great emptiness that rushed in to fill what once had been hope and jubilation. Our men were fighting for our way of life. We were exhibiting the same independence that had won America its freedom not yet one century before. So, when scores of them did not return, and those that did came back frail, beaten, haggard by war, the light of defiance gone from their eyes or else snuffed by bitter defeat, it was a time of weeping, until we could weep no more. Until all was still and quiet, and the long nights stretched on into utter uncertainty. I was a fierce and proud little thing in 62, still far from my 20th birthday. Every victory we had experienced elevated that pride still further. And in my mind, I was set on my course. I would marry a handsome young soldier, an officer. And when the fighting was done and the Confederacy victorious, we would inherit the cotton plantation from my father and experience the grandeur of prosperity for all our days. The young soldier did indeed come my way. Lieutenant Preston Beauregard with his flashing eyes and exaggerated bow. <laughs> he made me laugh and my heart flutter. And every moment spent with him in our gardens had me feeling more of a lady and less of a child. I cared about dresses and looking as pretty as could be. To my mind, this equated to adulthood as aptly as a fellow in uniform fighting for his side of the country, distancing himself from the younger boys who were unable to. At the Battle of Wilson's Wharf in 64, Lieutenant Beauregard was brought down by Union fire, and that evening lost his right leg and three fingers on his left hand. He lived, but the man who returned to me was a ruin of his former glory. His face scarred and gaunt. Those eyes which once danced now in near permanent repose. I did what so many other southern ladies at the time were prone to do. I stood by him. The Yankees had taken so much from us that to let my determination waver in the ugly face of cold consequence would have meant their victory over my soul. That August we were married, I cannot say in looking back now whether my pride was diminished in this sad time or whether it burned all the fiercer, but I refused to break. 
and that resolve is why I am alive to speak these words. The next year, my dear father took ill with rheumatic fever. It was May, a mere two days prior to the Declaration of Union victory, that he passed away. West Virginia was a new state, only just separated from Virginia. It was also an area of land divided by ideology. Given to populations of near equal parts, Union and Confederate soldiers, when the war was over, those who had offered shelter and comfort to the Confederacy were constitutionally disenfranchised, and in the city of Wheelan had their rights to vote rescinded in order to maintain Union control. We had become pariahs in our own homes, simply for maintaining loyalty towards our people. The reclamation years throughout the next decade were bitter indeed and over that period I grew hard and cold, older in spirit than I'd ever foreseen myself becoming. I kept my house and my plantation, and no Yankees attempted to lay claim, but it was a punishing circus act maintaining that land. And what business I could muster with no father and a husband who would just sit and read when not staring out of our drawing-room windows at nothing in particular. When the goblins reached the eastern states in February 73, I had become just about as hardy and shrewd as any woman you could care to mention. I call them goblins here because that is what they have been to us for almost ten years, and I see no reason to change that term for some textbook. You call them what you wish. Having survived on my own steam for this long, I saw no reason to panic and flee, as so many others did. I assembled the staff who wished to stay, and we set about turning Weirwood Manor into a fortress. We seized all aims of trade and became entirely self-sustaining. I surmised at this point, since the goblins had not been dealt with over the past year and were in fact spreading, that until further notice, they would become part of our lives. I had not seen one yet, and my view on them was detached and indifferent. By March, we were taken in survivors from the nearby towns of Buckley and Clearwater, many of them children, their families shattered by this new disease. It became our remit to snap them out of their shock, their innocence, their naivety. We put them to work and expanded our vegetable fields, fishing teams, and hunting parties. I established a room full of seamstresses working through the day to repair and maintain clothing and materials. Our kitchen staff increased in size and output. Our stable of livestock grew, and we had a good doctor to stop me any danger to our health and well-being. A school was set up to ensure the youngsters' minds would be sharp, although the subjects taught, some by myself, pertained less to algebra and Latin vocabulary and more to the process of surviving each day. We also began training in how to evade and dispatch the goblins. For everyone who might potentially wind up venturing forth from our secured gates to search for supplies. Even my darling Preston emerged from his catatonia to instruct us in combat, 
Over the following weeks, he taught me all he had learned on the battlefield, including the regrettable hubris that had led to his dismemberment. By that summer, the house was full, and from that point on, we had to turn away any more refugees. In 1878, a fella approached the front gate to inquire about our situation. He was a twitchy sort and had a funny air about him. I made sure he left with as little information as possible about us. Were I given a do-over of that conversation, I would have answered his inquiries with a furious retort of lead. Two days later, a crowd of men on horseback rode up and demanded that we give them room and board. They were armed and filthy, and looked like they were fixing for a skirmish. At their head was a smooth-talking fellow with a pencil mustache and a condescending tone. I refused him entry, and I believe it was my pride that saved my life. I am certain that had I stared into his eyes and wavered, had I not been coarsened with cold, decisive fire, had I not been clad in a practical shirt and pants with my gun belt slung at my hip, that they would have ended me and taken everything we had. Instead, they retreated and slunk back in the dead of night to try and take it from us anyway. As a grandfather clock in the hallway outside my bedroom struck one, Abigail Gray, one of my very favorite girls, quietly woke me. She was fully dressed and had been the others in her dormitory to do the same, as had James Penrose, a grave and steely-minded young Englishman who assisted our doctor. Abigail had spotted movement at our borders, having sat up on watch the whole night. Rather than creating a cacophony in an attempt to scare the interlopers away, I had my children take to the roofs to carefully and quietly mark their numbers. They weren't buffoons, I will give them that. These were professional raiders, clearly assembled from the rabble of angry, violent men who had decided their requirement for continuance outstripped that of the rest of America. Their type had ravaged several towns in the nearby area. But six months had passed, and I had thought us free, that they had moved on. As it transpired, they were simply resting, waiting until necessity would draw them to more violence. The main group was hanging back by the edge of the forest, waiting for some kind of signal from a team that had climbed up over the gate and were now within our walls. I decided, then and there, that if we were to be free of them, then the full attack must come. If we eliminated their spies, they would slink away and return again when hunger reminded them of their dire situation. We would not be ants to these grasshoppers. Every one of them must be eliminated. I had Abigail wake everybody else with swift armament. 
even still clad in their pajamas. There were four to two of us, and after years of collaboration and effort put into maintaining this house, every one of them was ready to defend it with their last breath. I waited until one of the shadowy men down by my front step lit up a torch and began yipping in an uncanny imitation of a fox. I gave the word, and we left him alive, using bows to dispatch the rest of them silently. The dark crowd of men by the forest had begun moving, and I spotted James creeping up behind the scout, who was only now beginning to suspect that he was alone. The two struggled briefly, and James came out the victor, bearing the torch down the front approach, to beckon our attackers further in the guise of their man. A sickening, wrenching sound filled the night air as the front gate was wrenched from its hinges, dragged to the ground by four tethered and whipped horses. I knew that the moment we attacked, there would be shots in all directions. Our recourse had to be one that would minimize damage to our house and ourselves. As I drew nearer, I counted over sixty out there in the dark. Abigail had taken everybody out the back and round the sides of the building, and using as much cover as we could possibly muster, we spread ourselves out until our lines were thin, but defended. The rabble in front of us was clearly nervous, and as James extinguished the torch and darted into the orchard, I heard the unmistakable whispers of panic. I spotted Abby over by the stable, her downstairs dormitory team ready to fire. Our first volley had to be with arrows to ensure the quietest result with the most downed men. Silently, I had my rooftop group take aim and sling two volleys of arrows in swift succession, numbering two dozen in an arc through the night sky and down onto the raiders. The screams that arose as the first wave hit were our signal to press the attack. The group broke. Shots did indeed ring out in all directions, and the side of the house was peppered something fierce. But as they lit their torches, they gave us targets, shining out of the darkness. Our third volley was with rifles, and this was a return fire of a degree they had clearly not expected from some jumped-up farm girl schoolmistress and her troop of field workers and fishermen. The bulk of the group charged in towards us, and I realized we had not felled nearly as many as I had hoped. Their panic was giving them leave to empty their weapons, and as they crossed the grounds, my children became exposed. This was a brutal and nightmarish affair. I spent the lion's share of it doling out orders from the rooftop, all the while wishing I could be on the ground dispatching these accursed and ungentlemanly types for daring to despoil our land and harm us. If they were content to murder and steal for their survival, we made sure that impulse was their undoing. James and a team on horseback chased down the fleeing remainder on my orders. Not one man was permitted to live, nor the women we found among their ranks. The danger of their continued existence 
spreading the word of Weirwood, was simply too dire. I speak of us now in the solemn hope that our bloody retribution will take on a mythological status and inspire others to fight for what they grow. Although, admittedly, if they have survived long enough to read this, then they have most likely had to do so already. In the fall of 82, when the cartographers showed up at my door, asking for trustworthy, brave, and clever individuals for their reunification, though it pained me to say so, and though years of entrenched bitterness left me indisposed on a personal level to their cause, Abigail and James were the two I put forward. If this is to be another war of numbers, I want the best and brightest in our ranks to guard us all from another far greater lost cause. Eighteen of our number died that night. They are buried in our grounds, along with everyone else we have ever lost over the years. This has been our existence, one of continual amendment of the requirements for survival. Its toll upon our bodies and souls is obvious. When the dawn broke that morning, and we accounted for the dead, I found my darling Preston, propped up as though in sleep by the side of the cherry tree. It was a place where once sat in our former life, dreaming of the days when things would be still more bright and rosy. Beside him were three men, cut through the heart and neck. Three men, including their arrogant leader himself, who lost a final battle to a crippled soldier with more bravery than they could ever comprehend. You have been listening to Section 6 of the Cartographer's Handbook Remastered. The Story of Weirwood. Written by Alexander Shaw. Catherine Holloway, performed by Maya Santandrea. Thomas W. Arlington, performed by Alex Shaw. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Pepper's Theme and Dreams Become Real, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. The New Century Multiverse is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, 
Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lacluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. <laughs>